Good morning, everyone. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. Ever wonder what a visit to a clinic or a hospital will look like in the future? Who will be the doctors and medical researchers who will play a key role in the experience of patients years from now? Who will address the racial disparities we currently see in healthcare? This hour, we're going to meet two of them. You know, medical school and graduate school can be really hard to get into and then get through. And I imagine it's even harder if you're the first person in your family to go to college and even tougher if you grew up without a traditional K through 12 education. These are true of the two guests joining me today. They both recently graduated from the Mayo Clinic Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences and plan to focus their careers on racial disparities in medicine and helping marginalized populations. And as I talk with them this morning, we're taking your phone calls. I want to hear from you too. Are you a recent medical school uh, or graduate school uh, graduate who is focusing on medicine? Do you know one? Are you the first in your family maybe to go to medical school? What was it like? What are some of the challenges that you had to overcome? Give us a call at 651-227-6000. Again, 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828. Let's bring in our guests. Joining us this morning, we have Minerva Oriana. Minerva graduated from Mayo just last month with a PhD in biomedical sciences, specializing in clinical and translational science. She's joining us from Rochester this morning. Hi there, Minerva. Hi there. Excited to be here. I'm excited to learn more about what all this means. (laughs) I want to learn more about what you're planning to do. We also have with us uh, Kenneth Vias. Now, Kenneth also joins us remotely from Rochester today. And he graduated in December from the Mayo Clinic Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences with his PhD in epidemiology and humanitarian health, specializing in healthcare access and outcomes among vulnerable populations. And there's more. He's in his final year of medical school and will graduate as a doctor of medicine from the Mayo Alex School of Medicine. Good morning to you, Kenneth, and congratulations. Good morning, Angela. Thank you so much. Now, I imagine both of you are just like, woo, uh, you're tired from all of that uh, studying and just uh, just the pressure and stress of this. So uh, Minerva, how does it feel uh, to have graduated now and, and to be, you know, complete with your, your PhD? It is, is crazy because it's been a long journey and it's still, <laughs> I think every time I think about it, I think I was in a meeting yesterday, they were like, Dr. Minerva. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't <laughs> believe I, I did it. <laughs> you did it. Right. And and you always knew it was going to be a long haul. It's going to be years and years of education, but uh, feeling like it's definitely worth it. Oh, 100%. It was, I wouldn't see myself taking any other journey. Every step of the way, it was worth it. Mm. And Kenneth, for you, I know you still have uh, another degree to, that you're working on, but uh, to be finished with your PhD, how are you feeling? It's it's wonderful. It's a, a great experience. But as you mentioned, it, it is a lot of work. Uh, it takes a lot of effort and, and thought and heart you put into it. And seeing it all come together and be fruitful and productive and meaningful and come to a close. Um, yeah, absolutely a wonderful experience. And so help me with some of these terms. You know, I said that you both you just got your PhDs from the Mayo Clinic Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. Many of us think of Mayo as the hospital, but we forget that there, you know, there's a medical school and a graduate school as well. Minerva, tell us what biomedical science is. Yeah. So when you think about, you know, any research being done in the healthcare system, um, that's kind of what biomedical science is. So it starts from the very beginning of what you think about 
um, those scientists that are in the wet lab with the white coats, you know, thinking about procedures, and it moves all the way to the clinical trials, and then finally to the population. So anything related to human health, um, that's what biomedical science is. And I said that you're specializing in clinical and translational science. What does that mean? Yeah, so translational aspect is actually moving that pathway. So looking from like, the experiments, the well lab, all the way to the population. So we, um, Kenneth and I actually specifically trained in looking at every single aspect. So how, let's say an example of a drug, how does it start from the very beginning that we discover it? How does it move to clinical trials? And how does it move to actually being applied to the population um, mm-hmm. for their use to better their health? So it's that translational acts um, mm-hmm. process. And Kenneth, you're uh, specializing in or planning to specialize in epidemiology and humanitarian health. I have a better idea of what that means, but describe what what that means to you. Yeah. So when I think of epidemiology and humanitarian health, I think of it as epidemiology is the tools, the statistical and scientific tools that you use to study a population. And specifically, I'm trying to use that tool set in a humanitarian context. And that could be refugees here in the U.S., it could be undocumented workers here in the U.S., or it could be things like Syrian refugees or asylum seekers um, anywhere in the world. Uh, But it's a system to analyze and understand and get a good picture of health factors for these vulnerable or displaced populations. Mm. And so you're doing something unusual in that uh, you have, you know, you've earned your PhD, uh, but now you're continuing on in medical school. So your plan is to be a, a practicing physician who sees patients, but also to do research, Kenneth? That's correct. Yeah, there's a small subset of people who go to medical or graduate school and choose to pursue both the PhD, which has its research focus and gives you that ability to ask scientific questions um, in in a really methodical and and, and rigorous way. And they combine it with a medical doctorate so that they can see and take care of patients. And the idea behind that is that you want to be able to interact those two realms, somewhat like Minerva was talking about when she explained translational research. This is is another way of doing that, where I want to take problems I see in the clinic with my patients in person, and I want to understand them using rigorous scientific methods so that I can come up with a solution and then hope to take that back to the clinic um, for a timely implementation and, and a real way to use insight from both fields to improve people's health. Now, I'm curious, you were both uh, taking courses during the pandemic when we saw uh, people who worked in healthcare uh, endure a lot of stress. So what happened during the pandemic that maybe changed your views about what you want to do in medicine or or just further inspired you? Minerva? Um, You see a lot of, I think, the the health disparities that we both study got a lot exasperated a lot more with the pandemic and access to care. Um, We definitely see that a lot. I was actually in my very first year when the pandemic hit. Um, So I just started the graduate program. um, And it was a very interesting transition. Um, But at least education-wise, Mayo was already prepared to that because they already had three different sites from Arizona and Florida Mm -hmm. and Minnesota. So they were Mm -hmm. able to adapt the education. Um, But being able to see... um, kind of the clinic go down and like close for a minute and we're kind of all watching and seeing. Um, it was definitely an experience being in school at that time, especially at Mayo. And the classroom discussions, uh, did that become part of the discussions, the disparities that we see in healthcare? Um, in some some classes, definitely. Um, 
not some of them more a little more i guess more in depth into like the molecular pathways that you know mm-hmm. they couldn't really bring the connections but um some of like our health disparities classes or community engagement classes it's kind of like how do we shift research to still become accessible despite you know everything closed down and like zoom became one of the best methods to now interact with patients and participants you know it opened more access to wider ranges actually shifting um technology focuses so not things are required in person anymore now, um, Minerva, I, well, both of you, I want to get more into your personal stories and your childhood experiences. Um, um, Minerva, I know that your parents are from El Salvador. Uh, mm-hmm. You were the first in your family to go to college. What can you share about your family's story uh, about, um, you know, what was it like for you growing up? And when the seed was planted in your mind, like, I want to be a doctor. Yeah, so um, my parents immigrated um, to the U.S. in the 80s to kind of escape that civil war in El Salvador at that time. And um, from a very young young age, they always wanted, um, I guess I was like their American dream. Um, Mm -hmm. They always wanted me to pursue education. Um, So it's kind of like, you know, any things that you see on TV, like a doctor, a lawyer, this, um, any high ending careers. Um, And I shifted to being a doctor and um, or being a medical doctor, I guess. Because <laughs> initially you were pre-med and you're like, I'm going to be a medical yes. doctor. Why did, why did that change? Um, it was my very last semester in undergrad and I was able to do a research opportunity. So this was like kind of like something I wasn't even aware about when I was in undergrad that research was a thing or a PhD was a thing. Um, and were, I loved it. What were you researching? Um, I was working in an independent study in a human anatomy and she just let me, she's like, okay, just ask whatever questions. And it just allowed a different sort of freedom. And I was like, I want to keep investigating and asking questions. And then my mindset focused from, um, curing things after they've happened to preventing them from happening and PhD and asking scientific questions was the best way for me to do it. Um, but I didn't have any research experience at that time, you know, being first generation, I didn't know how to navigate the school system. And I'm like, okay, I think I got to do my master's, get research experience. And then that's where I was exposed to health disparities. And I knew that was something I want to continue being my life's research and my life's focus. And then I applied to the PhD program at Mayo. Yeah. So what is it about the disparities and in, in particularly racial disparities that you find interesting or troubling? Well, it's something I didn't. So it's another thing like I didn't know what they were. Um, but once I got in, it, it makes sense because I'm a Latina myself. So I could see what the aspects of health disparities within my own community and how there's things that prevent it and how we better access to care. And I think being that insider researcher, so being that person within the community, helping the community help navigate that and create more access to care, access to research to help improve that, because in all aspects of diseases, um, people of color are understudied um, and we need to see that. And also from different aspects of the U S focus that as well. And I understand some of your graduate research focused on uh, fibroids, uh, uterine yes. fibroids in women of color. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah. So um, for those who are unaware, um, uterine fibroids are non-cancerous growths that grow within the uterus. Um, and they, so think about your uterus as the size of a fist and Fibroids range in size from the size of a blueberry to sometimes the size of a melon. And you could actually get multiple in the same uterus. Um, and depending on the positions, they might cause symptoms like as no- abnormal bleeding or, you know, sometimes your stomach um, protrudes out a little or sometimes there's all like bowel dysfunction as well. And depending on the position, you could also face infertility or miscarriages as well. Um, and it's kind of pretty common in women. Um it's about 70% of people with uteruses actually have uterine fibroids, but about, let's say, 
a quarter of them actually have face clinical symptoms, such as like that having bleeding and the symptoms that I mentioned. And there's a disparity as well with uh, Black women facing higher disparities of uterine fibroids. And that's how I kind of stumbled upon the research because I wasn't aware of uterine fibroids as someone who has a uterus. And I was like, I can only imagine. And then I became more interested in the Latina population as a Latina myself, as their research hadn't really been done um, in that field. And so you're planning uh, to really look into gynecological, gynecological cancers in, in women of color um, yeah. moving forward in your career? Yeah. So um, after I graduated, I was able to get a job at the University of Washington in Seattle starting in August. And we'll be still shifting my focus to now looking at endometrial cancer. Um, but in Black women and kind of improving their access to care and how their entire journey navigates. Because um, my PhD work, most of my training was in how to talk to patients and every, interview them about their journeys. And um, it's the same skill set that I apply into the next position as well. And you see that as being um, a better fit for you than treating patients, the research aspect of this. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, definitely. Because I like being able to talk to the patients about their experiences and just bringing it back to other researchers and medical doctors of how we can improve this. So it's being the liaison of sorts between the patients and the medical community. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking about the future of medicine and healthcare and the people who will be delivering that care and leading medical research. Uh, talking with two recent uh, graduates of the, the Mayo Clinic uh, Graduate School of Biomedical sciences about uh, their experiences leading up to this point and and what they plan to do with the future and want to take your phone calls too. what questions do you have for our guests and uh, do you know uh, a, a medical school graduate or are you one uh, tell us about your experiences and what you hope to do in the future what challenges have you had to overcome to pursue uh, that degree in some field of medicine call us at 651-227-6000 or 800-242-2828 uh, Kenneth, uh, your childhood story, I don't even know how to begin to get into this. I'm looking at my notes. Uh, but let's start with the fact that uh, you really did not have a traditional K through 12 education. Um, as a child, uh, you and your family experienced homelessness and, and poverty. And as a result, um, you, you know, how do you describe like what school was, how school happened or didn't happen for you? I do have an untraditional um, <laughs> childhood. That is that is absolutely true. And sometimes I'm not sure where to start uh, myself. But I think when I look back on it as an adult now, I, I see that there were some fundamental things my parents gave me, and that was uh, trust and love and encouragement. And those were vital to, to sort of me growing up and, and becoming someone um, who, who could make decisions for himself and, and felt the, the sort of bravery to do that. But part of my upbringing didn't uh, go as, as it would for many people. And that's true. A lot, a lot of homelessness as a child uh, spent a lot of time in tents or vehicles in the woods, um, rural parts of Western US. And my parents just didn't feel that a traditional K through 12 education, subjects like science or mathematics were um, important and, and that they might actually threaten what was very dear to them. And that was their faith. And so um, my, I have three sisters. None of us went to K through 12. None of us got um, GEDs or anything of, of uh, similar nature. We just learned to read and write and mostly uh, engaged in biblical studies for an hour or two a day and then worked. And that, that did make it tricky when I decided that uh, I was interested in, in some of these topics, especially in the chance to go to college, um, which like Minerva, no one in my family had done before. 
um, difficult to get admission without a K through 12 education. So I'm thinking about you was at some point when you were a teenager, I think maybe when you were 17 or 18, you were tested and, and it was determined that you had like maybe a third grade education as a teenager. Yes. In fact, it's, it's a little bit worse than that. Um, I was 27 when I took that test. So that's correct. I, the long story short of it is that I had the chance through a Supreme Court ruling in my state of residence, which was Colorado, that because I was a resident, I um, had to be given admission to community college. Mm-hmm. And that enabled me to get in. So then they they do an assessment and say, where is your education at? And you take a, about a four-hour exam, and it tells them where it's at. And their conclusion was it's below the third grade. We don't know how far because the exam doesn't go below the third grade, but but you're down there somewhere, um, except reading and writing, which was college level. Mm-hmm. So you attend community college beginning at 27? That's correct, yes. I okay. went into my first classroom in my life with my first book and took my first exam at 27. And had to do a lot of self-study because community college at that point taught down to ninth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were lots of new resources to do that. Um, the internet, for one thing, had taken off and there were math lectures on YouTube or things of that sort that were really crucial. And of course, a lot of people who were willing to just help when I asked for it. So then you move forward, you get through community college, and then you get a bachelor's degree. And what is your uh, undergraduate degree in? My undergraduate degree is in integrative biology, which is a bit of a uh, unusual term, but it's essentially the study of biology, but as it relates to the rest of the world, philosophy and ethics and society and disease and, and lots of the human experience, but with an emphasis on biology. So at what point are you like, I'm going to be a doctor? I mean, that medical, how are you even believing that medical school would be possible? Because it's it's very hard to get into. It is. I think it honestly didn't dawn on me until I, I was in my late 20s that I could be a physician. I'm not sure why that's the case, but I remember sitting in a vehicle in a gas station parking lot and suddenly the thought crossed my mind that I, I could be a doctor. There's not actually a reason I couldn't do this. Uh, I didn't know any doctors. Nobody in my family had ever done anything like that, and and I rarely saw a physician growing up, so I wasn't real familiar with them. And I think with that ignorance um, came some opportunity, and I just stoked up some courage, started trying to read and learn what it looked like, how I was going to do this, and really applied myself to my studies, uh, my research, and and social activities that were relevant and, and communicated that I really wanted to do this and was really committed to it. But you had traveled, you had seen some things, hadn't you traveled the world and, and really experienced a lot that probably is now very valuable to you as someone who is now in medical school. I had, that's correct. Yeah, as, as a younger teenager, I, I was homeless for a while at about 17. And um, a gentleman that would pass by the, the tent I was staying in realized that and, and said, would you like to come to Nepal with me and, and work with lepers for a couple of months, given that you're not doing much here? And um, I jumped at that opportunity, saw a lot there that really had a profound impact on me, um, what life is like for people at the margins, and, and that certainly lepers anywhere in the world, but but definitely Nepal as well. And that got me interested in, in humanitarian work, and I saw um, a, a lot of good that could be done even with my basic skill set. Um, 
and, and lack of education at that time. So I spent the next seven years doing uh, humanitarian logistics and social interventions. Um, yes, in much of the world, and certainly that shaped what made me want to go into medicine and the perspectives that I now hold on it. Whenever when you hear a story like this, uh, and you meet a classmate like this, what goes to your mind about about just like Kenneth's journey to, uh, you know, ending up at Mayo and being in medical school now? No, it is wild. I We've interacted with Kenneth and also like this was during the pandemic, so we couldn't really interact as much, but Kenneth's always been helpful through when I needed. Um, it was just wow. And it just, it brings a different perspective when we start going into these careers, definitely of seeing different experiences. And it's so necessary having diverse ex- perspectives once we go to the medical system and, you know, as we continue doing on research. So wild. <laughs> so, so, so Kenneth, do you, you know, I don't know what they teach you in medical school, but I know as a patient, one of the things I I, I think about and care about is that, that bedside manner. So uh, for both of you, Minerva and Kenneth, how do you learn to be, how to, to like interact with people in a way that makes them trust you and want to share with you uh, so that you can get the information you need to help them? Uh, is that something that's taught? Or is that just something that you naturally bring to the, the table uh, based on your personality and your experiences? What do you think about that, Kenneth? I think it's a combination of, of both, really. I think there is some aspects of human connection, especially under the temporal constraints, if you would, the short time that you have to interact with patients that really you need to foster as you grow up and you need to learn to respond to other people's impressions of you and, and shore up maybe some shortcomings that you see. But you also get the chance to practice it in medical school. And there's also some selection when you're admitted to medical school. If they think you're really going to struggle struggle to connect with people, they, they may um, either give you extra time or attention or honestly uh, may, maybe direct you into a non-patient facing role. Um, because I think it's both something you bring on your own and something that gets refined with time and instruction. And Minerva, how do you think about, um, you know, how you interact with, you know, in the work that you hope to do and plan to do with research? Um, and just the thought of, of like your own experience as a patient, uh, when we think of the bedside manner of doctors. No, yeah, I definitely agree with what um, Kenneth's saying. It's, it's definitely both. Um, I, you know, how one personal is and kind of being understanding of, people come from different walks of life and how you have to navigate your relationships with them, especially in a short period of time as a patient and as a physician. Um, But in the research setting, it's a little more long-term because I do what we call community engagement work. So working with communities and it involves from the very beginning, establishing trust. And sometimes you're not going to, you know, come in like, I have this idea. Let's do it next week. You know, um, communities are not going to trust you like that. So it's developing a long-term relationship with them. And, you know, Bringing back, like, because you might come in as a researcher with an idea of what you think is important to research, but the community could disagree. That's not what they're focused right now. So it's having that um, relationship and just navigating that and fostering that relationship long term and realize you have to work on the relationship first before you could actually keep moving forward in the research that you want to do. Do you have any experiences uh, as as a patient that uh, sort of planted the seed? I'm like, oh, yeah. I, I I care about this in terms of my interactions with my doctors, and this is good, this is bad. Um, any stories that you can recall of of being a patient and and thinking like, if I were a doctor, I would do that differently. Um, I mean, not differently, but I think when I was um, so I grew up in the California, and you go to my doctor for checkups, and I think I once I started medical school, I start no, not graduate school, I started going to Mayo for my 
um, medical care. And I, I was kind of shocked about the fact that I was with the doctor for half an hour. And she was like, let's just talk about things. And I was like, wow, you want to listen, you know? And it's kind of, that's kind of how I approach things. And I'm like, let's just talk. I'm not going to have like a bunch of questions for you. I'm like, let me just um, navigate this journey. Tell me what's going on, you know, and just listen. I think that's just very important. And I carry that through like all the research I do is just trying to listen. And, and Kenneth, what do you think about that too? I've had that experience where, you know, doctors that I've seen, you know, repeatedly over the years when even if it's just five minutes, let's just, you know, what's going on? How are you doing? And um, often what they will discover, what I will even discover and just having that casual conversation first is that something that uh, you have found to be valuable or is important to you? Certainly. Yes. I think that's, that's crucial to establishing that trust Minerva was talking about, which whether that's with a community and long-term research or even a five minute um, urgent care visit is, is essential. And letting the conversation develop naturally certainly helps that. I think it's, it's challenging for some clinicians to come in and set down what they just saw in the last room or what's going on in their own life today and pausing to do that, but certainly something that I think is helpful and certainly something that I notice when my care provider uh, isn't able to do that. We're talking about the future of medicine and healthcare and the people who will be delivering that care and leading medical research. Uh, talking with two young people right now, uh, young, much younger than, than I am, uh, recent graduates of the Mayo Clinic Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences, uh, Kenneth Vias, who is, uh, just earned his PhD and his, in his final year of medical school and will be doing, uh, continuing his work to become a doctor of medicine from Mayo, uh, as well as Minerva Oriana, who is a first-generation college student who just graduated last month from the Mayo Clinic Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences with a PhD in biomedical sciences, planning to do research, uh, learning more about what their pathway has been to get to this point and their thoughts about some of the disparities that we see in healthcare and taking your phone calls and questions too. Uh, as a patient, you know, what would you like to see uh, doctors do a, a better job at? What research do you feel is, is missing that you want to know more about? Or do you know someone who recently went through medical school? And what was their experience like? Maybe that's you. Give us a call at 651-227-6000. Or you can call us at 800-242-2828. All right, let's take a phone call uh, from a listener. In Golden Valley, we have Nancy on the line. Good morning, Nancy. Thank you for calling in. Good morning, Angela. Thank you so much for this, this topic. Um, I was really interested to, um, I was driving the car and I heard Minerva speaking about her uh, research with endometrial cancer. Um, and I'm an ovarian cancer survivor myself. And there, um, we, I feel like we really need more research in ovarian cancer, especially for women of color. And um, so I'd just like to hear more about uh, Minerva's research for that. Yeah, uh, Minerva, you uh, are planning, you've done research and you want to really focus, you said, on, on gynecological cancers in women. Um, what have you found so much, so far about what is lacking in that research? Yeah, I think you, you assume that women have been studied or I think people with uteruses have been studying. But it's honestly about 30 years ago that we started actually including women into clinical trials. So there's still a lot of work to be done. Just 30 years and ago? Yeah, just 30 years ago, <laughs> um, which is not much in the grand scheme of things. Um, so I think just a lot more work needs to be done in general. I'm I'm not as familiar with uh, ovarian or endometrial cancer yet. I haven't started my research on that yet because um, I'm starting in August. But I see a lot of commonalities within the symptoms itself. And I think 
based on my research on that I did interviewing women with uterine fibroids, there's a lot of similar symptoms such as heavy bleeding being one of the most common symptoms. And there's just a lack of discussion of what exactly is heavy bleeding um, due to this taboo around menstrual health. And have you found uh, with the uterine cancer, have you found that in many cases, women have have symptoms for years, and then it's it's just not addressed or it's it's downplayed? Have you seen that? Oh, yeah, definitely. At least with um, uterine fibroids, um, there's a study that basically talk to women about how long they were experiencing symptoms until they started talking to their medical doctor. And it's about an average of three years of experiencing symptoms. And sometimes when I was asking um, my participants, it was longer that they were in their 30s while I was interviewing them and they were experiencing symptoms in their early 20s. Um, if I like, They tried to pin down to it. Um, so sometimes years goes along with dealing with symptoms for sure. And are you optimistic in, in the next few years that there, there will be better research and better treatment options? Oh, yeah. I think um, with like, I have my community collaborators, like the Fiber Foundation, it's I, having those conversations. I think that's what needs to be done. Because I think a lot of the reasons um, patients are just, with their symptoms is that there's no conversations of what is to be expected, what, you know, what are normal symptoms, quote unquote, normal symptoms. And I think a lot of the people are removing or community partners are removing that taboo of having these conversations, especially with gynecological disorders, mm-hmm. um, since many of their symptoms are very similar. So I definitely see moving it forward. And I'm always happy to contribute to that research as well. And even just talking about menstrual cycles, that's an awkward mm-hmm. conversation with a, a physician. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, some, you know, from a young age and due to culture, they just don't feel comfortable talking about that or, um, you know, stuff like that. All right. Uh, let's take another phone call from a listener in Minneapolis. Angela's on the phone. Good morning, Angela. Hi, good morning. Um Unfortunately, I missed the first part of the show. I'm going to have to listen online. Uh, but I am a, I'm a patient. Um, I have had rheumatoid arthritis for almost 26 years. Uh, I was diagnosed when I was 18. Um, so I suffer with a lot of chronic pain. And um, a big issue, I think, that isn't being talked about enough um, because of the what's going on with the opioid crisis is that um, a lot. I feel like a lot of patients are really having a hard time communicating with the doctors and having good experience at pain clinics. Um, I personally myself have experienced a lot of emotional distress, um, like not be, not having my pain believed. Um, you know, people mm-hmm. are being other patients and myself accused of pill seeking and it's like so the bedside manner there (laughs) really needs some improvement but I'm just wondering um, I mean I've had some good experiences too of course but um, there have been so many times when I've been in unbearable pain and other people that I know too it's happened and and just like nope can't can't get relief and and are forced to suffer and um, I'm just wondering what. Is anything new changing with that? Or <laughs> like, how is it talked about? How is that talked about in, right. in, yeah. in medical school, Kenneth? Um, about believing people's pain and um, and also, you know, some of, some of the different stories you hear based upon you know people's race about whether or not they are believed. Yeah, well, Angela, I'm sorry to hear that you're um, going through that and have had those experiences. It it is a difficult topic in that we did, I think, get a little bit what we 
term now opioid shy um, because we saw that it could be really disruptive. But we we are concerned about some evidence that shows that both women and even more so women of color uh, aren't really believed by a lot of healthcare professionals when they describe their pain and the severity and, and how it impacts their lives. And that's something that is now being integrated into medical school curriculums that this deficit has had a real impact, especially on minority women, and that it, it does need improvement. People need to learn to listen better and also to assess differently than what they were traditionally trained. Mm. And uh, I think I have in my notes, Kenneth, that your your father, uh, he's Mexican and indigenous, correct? Correct. Mm-hmm. So as a, a new uh, doctor, a, a person of color, um, do you think that you view some of the, the or you will view some of the stories that patients share for share with you in a different way than than you might if you were like uh, if you were white? I do. I think personal experiences that physicians themselves have had either before they went into medicine or once they went into medicine do play a real role in how they see their patients' needs and how able they are to see what perhaps some of the underlying needs, the unspoken needs are, and that they need to address that. We talked about it's difficult at times to talk about menstrual cycles with your physician. It's things like that, seeing that in in this group, I know this group because I'm from this group, this social group, and I can see that we don't talk about this and we need to have that conversation. If I don't have that conversation with the patient, no one will. And that could be about menstrual cycles. It could also be about pain and expressing it. Um, definitely personal experience impacts how, how I see the experiences of my patients and what uh, angles I want to use and, and, and explore to, to help that. And Minerva, what's been your experience um, in uh, patients saying that they're not believed when they describe their pain or being treated differently than other patients. Oh, yeah, that's something that's very common. And when I was um, interviewing um, my participants for my study, um, because especially with like when you know menstruation, there's like, yeah, I'm bleeding. And they're like, okay, but how long? And they're not being listened to, you know, it's just like, oh, it's just a normal aspect. Or sometimes they're just um, given a throwaway treatment that they have to keep fighting and advocating for themselves. Um, and it's, you know, it's sad to be saying, but I'm, I'm happy to see that people are becoming more advocates um, for their own body because you do know your body best. Um, and I know from my personal experience, I try to relate to them using my, also my cultural experience. Cause I know, um, and having those conversations and creating that openness to be like, no, maybe this is something to talk about. Or even like just talking with friends or like, oh, I'm experiencing so-and-so symptoms. I'm like, mm, you should probably check that out. You know, that's not normal based on the research that I do, you know, and being kind of being that push forward. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's take another phone call from a listener uh, as we talk about uh healthcare and experiences with doctors in hospitals and clinics and the doctors and researchers of the future. Our two guests, uh, both recent graduates of the Mayo Clinic Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences uh, with PhDs. Uh, give us a call at 651-227-6000 or you can call us at 800-242-2828. Uh, let's take a phone call uh, from Elkhorn New Market. Gina is on the phone. Good morning, Gina. What do you want to share with us? Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. So um, my name is Gina. I'm a registered nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also an adult with a congenital heart condition. I'm a patient actually at Mayo Clinic. My question is, what is um, med school doing to help doctors get ready to um, support patients with medical debt? 
Mm. There's been a lot of news coverage about um, medical debt, hospital debt, uh, coverage and care being refused because of it. Uh, What do you think about that, uh, Kenneth? Yeah, so as a medical student, I, I can only speak to that aspect of it. But as a medical student, I'll tell you that in our curriculum, probably for the past about eight years, we've integrated a series of courses and discussions and and lectures on what we term high-value care, that is ensuring that the patient is getting all of what is needed and that finances aren't a reason that that's not happening, but also trying to do that in the most uh, cost-effective way possible with this goal of reducing financial barriers to care or financial consequences of care. It is a difficult topic because our goal when we sit down with a patient and see them, and this is what we're taught in medical school, is is to focus on the, the needs of that person there. This is a central idea of medicine, but specifically Mayo Clinic. So making decisions based on finances is something that, that we're aware of and we're trying to improve. On the other hand, we as single um, physicians, and certainly myself as a medical sco- student, have limited ability to sway um, global drug pricing and things like mm-hmm. that, but do know that there is an active effort, at least here in our curriculum, to help physicians in training understand the ramifications of debt and how to deliver the best care they can while limiting that debt. And Minerva, what stands out to you when you think about medical debt and hospital debt and, and what that does to families and and the obstacles it creates for people to get, get care that they need? No, yeah. Um, you know, in my research while seeking ASCA to uterine fibers, I do see that debt and cost of things are a barrier to access to care and sometimes delays things. And it is, I think, um, I was interviewing women that sometimes were seeking treatment during the pandemic, you know, and sometimes they lost their job or the insurance cover that they did have a delay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it goes back to like a bigger national issue at that hand, um, you know. So yeah, it's definitely a big barrier in seeking care, regardless of its, you know, biological disorders or any other care. In Eaton Prairie, Tom is on the phone. And Tom, what question do you have about uh, just the future of uh, our future doctors and medical researchers as we talk with two of them? Uh, Hi, Uh, thanks for taking my call. Mm -hmm. Um, I just uh, missed the first part of the program, but uh, I'm very interested in medicine and um, I'm a patient at Mayo, actually, Um, I'm interested in um, how my faith or the doctor's faith uh, helps or hinders his practice. And uh, in uh, a little uh, quick question, uh, quick story, my doctor at Mayo, I, I said, I'm praying that my surgery or surgery won't be necessary on my jaw. I had a benign cyst on my jaw. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, I'm praying too. Hmm. And that surprised you when he said that? It, uh, it reassured me. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. Right. And right. I've, I've been reading uh, so, some of Larry Dossie, a doctor who's, who I think he said that uh, doctors that don't pray for their patients are, are um Guilty. Of, uh, I don't. Uh, I don't know how to say this right. But guilty of malpractice. If mm. they if they believe in the power of prayer, then they should be praying for their their patients. 
All right. Well, uh, Kenneth, I'll ask you about this. You, you stated your parents were extremely religious, which is why you, you had a very non-traditional uh, education. Uh, they didn't uh, want you attending school and you, you spent all of your time reading and writing and reading the Bible. But how does that play into then what you plan to do as, as a, a medical doctor in the future? Yeah, I definitely recognize that for many, many people, the extreme majority of the world, faith is a central aspect of their lives, and it's integral to healing. And of course, much of modern medicine's origins had really robust faith elements to it. And I do think it's a very important part of it. I don't integrate faith a lot into my practice because the number of diverse faiths, people without faiths, is pretty substantial. Mm -hmm. And you do have to walk a line when you don't know these personal things about a person in not distancing them by guessing incorrectly or, or expressing a faith that they don't agree with. But I certainly support patients and their providers doing things, and that certainly includes prayer, that are helpful and supportive and reinforcing um, for their care, their well-being overall. And and I do think spirituality and, and healing um, come hand in hand for most people. What was going on with you when you were um, a teenager, uh, uh, Kenneth, when you were, again, um, experiencing homelessness, and there was just a lot of turmoil within your family? Um, you know, what kept you motivated and moving forward? I think for a good while, as, as a young man, I, I did lean quite heavily on my faith, and that was something that um, I had obviously fostered over throughout my childhood over those many years. But I would also say that there's some persistence and some sense of hope and beauty within the human spirit that need not be associated with a particular faith or even necessarily spirituality. And that, to be entirely honest, really is what I relied on. I saw people who had been through harder times find hope, do well. Um, and, and history really is is full of that. And I think understanding that there's something beautiful about the human spirit that, that can do this, that can look forward and understand that it can get better and push through. And that was um, probably the most central thing to me at that difficult time. All right, let's take another phone call from a listener in uh, Mendota Heights. Kate is on the phone. Good morning, Kate. What questions do you have uh, for our two guests? Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Um, I am living with stage four lung cancer, which was diagnosed two years ago. Uh, fortunately, there's a targeted medication for a specific mutation that's keeping me alive. Um, my question is regard in regard to diagnosis and improved diagnostics to prevent uh, before treatments become necessary or to minimize it. For example, after my diagnosis, I went on the American Lung Association website and took a quiz with my symptoms, and they said, no worries, it shouldn't be a problem. I had stage four at that time. So... Um, Symptoms were a persistent cough that lasted for years and years, uh, and nothing seemed to make it go away. So your thoughts on research in the area of diagnostics to catch diseases earlier, in addition to, of course, the important treatments that are available. I, my former mm -hmm. oncologist is now down at Mayo and is probably researching in, in the area, but 
that's the question. Mm, okay. So Minerva, um, as you, again, you said you've decided instead of seeing patients, you're gonna, you're all in on research. And so uh, how optimistic should we be that, that research is going to move at a pace that's fast enough that will be able to help us, um, you know, early on in diagnosis of, of different diseases? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I definitely see like a lot of research, especially in Mayo, um, because we have those populations that come to Mayo that have, I know, you know, other colleagues that were looking specifically at rare diseases and more personalized focus. And that is one of the things that Mayo is shifting in research is more personalized medicine, you know, to help prevent things um, and, you know, earlier diagnoses and stuff like that. But, you know, diseases are very broad. um, And, you know, sometimes when it comes to certain mutations, it's like, one in who knows how much, you know, um, but we're definitely moving forward uh, at the pace that we would like, you know, um, not, not as quick enough, especially like, you know, we're specializing in clinical trials. It takes about like more than a decade from things to move from, you know, from the lab to actual clinical trials and treatments. So we're still not moving fast enough, hmm. but we're definitely moving forward. And Kenneth, in our last 30 seconds here, what advice do you have for us as patients? Uh, You're in medical school. What can we do a better job of as patients? I think especially for minority patients or patients um, who who have limited access to care, I'd really encourage them and their family members to advocate for their needs and hopes. It's important to understand that the clinician doesn't have all the time in the world to understand everything. So really come prepared with those needs and hopes prioritized and make them clear. And when you can, um, educate yourself from a reliable source on the internet about your disease and and about its management. And together, that will help you both make good shared decisions uh, that are beneficial and and appropriate. Mm. Well, um, congratulations to both of our guests, and uh, we appreciate the work you've already done and what you're going to do in the future. Our two guests today, we've been talking with Dr. Minerva Oriana, who graduated from Mayo last month with a PhD in biomedical sciences, specializing in clinical and translational science, Dr. Minerva, as well as Dr. Kenneth Vias, who uh, also joining us remotely from Rochester today who just graduated in December from the Mayo Clinic Graduate School in Biomedical Sciences with his PhD in Epidemiology and Humanitarian Health and is in medical school continuing on. Thank you to both of our guests and to our listeners. This conversation was produced by Danelle Cloutier. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.